This is a Founding Media Podcast. Welcome to the Pack and Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Axel Brabe. Today, I'm so excited to sit down with Ali Kane of Haven's Kitchen. Located in New York City, Haven's Kitchen is a place for people to experience and connect through seasonal food. Not only are they reconnecting people with food and cooking, but they have launched a line of their own sauces to help make that process even easier. Ali also hosts a podcast called In the Sauce, where she talks to fellow food entrepreneurs. I knew we had to connect when she was in Austin this summer. So here's my conversation with Ali Kane. Welcome to Austin. Thank you. It's fun to be in Austin. It's actually cooler in Austin right now than it is in New York. Really? Yep. Wow, that's that's strange because yeah. I've been sweating all day. It's really strange. I haven't taken a shower. You you I did shower. Okay, yeah. nice. <laughs> lucky you, lucky yeah, you. Thank you. But um yeah, I'm happy to have you on. You were one of my inspirations to start my own podcast. Awesome. So I started listening to your stuff a couple months ago, and then I had the idea, well, I, I can do this too about Texas brands. Yeah. So I pitched the idea, got the show, and I'm always listening to your episodes. Huge fan. Oh, um, thank you. I learn a lot. I take some notes here and yep. there. Um, but no, I love it a lot. So what I want to do, mm-hmm. I want to start off with your question, which is... Oh, how were you like as a kid? Aww. But maybe before that, should you give us a little bit of a little bit of information about like what Haven's Kitchen is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's start there and then tell <laughs> okay. me about your childhood. Um, well, it all I guess it kind of all comes together because I have always been into teaching and not um, not for just the sake of teaching, but I really love taking something complicated and kind of breaking it down into little digestible pieces, whether it's a recipe or in this case, it's CPG. Um, so I, uh, I opened Haven's Kitchen in 2012. It's a recreational cooking school, just meaning that it's not like a professional culinary program, um, but it's for people who just like want to make dinner and are maybe a little intimidated by the kitchen or never really learned as a lot of, you know, Americans, we haven't necessarily grown up, you know, in the kitchen cooking. Um, and it, it was doing great. I mean, it was, it sort of is the love of my life in a lot of ways and making a lot of people happy. And it was very based in sort of going to the green market and understanding how to cook what you want to eat, um, but not having it be like drudgery and a chore. Um, so it was all about like global flavors, but local ingredients and really understanding like from a sustainability perspective that home cooking is like the single best thing you can do for your health, the health of your community, farm labor practices, environmental practices, food justice issues, mm-hmm. like home cooking is kind of that one big lever. And and, and sorry to yeah. cut in, but where exactly in New York is it and when did you start it? So I opened it in 2012 and it's on 17th Street between 6th and 7th, which okay. is a couple blocks away from the Union Square Green Market mm-hmm. where I used to teach. Um, and basically the sauces evolved out of our students saying, you know, we kind of know how to grill a piece of chicken and we get how to saute some tofu. What we don't have the time 
or kind of the wherewithal to make is that sauce. That's why we do takeout. That's why we're signing up for meal kits. That's why we go out to eat because I don't want to shop for lemongrass and I don't even know what I would do with it if I brought it home. And by the way, I'm not like mincing capers or getting out a Cuisinart that I don't own, right? And then I have to clean up. A $12,000 like, exactly. Cuisinart. <laughs> or, you know, buying sesame oil and miso paste and murin and, you know, buying all of these different things and there are these jars of things sitting in the back of your fridge or your cabinet for like six years and then you kind of open them up and you're like wait what did, what was I going to make with this so you know we kind of as a team thought can we create a sauce that is kind of like what we would teach you to make in the cooking school or what's in my cookbook and have it be like really high quality, but also available in grocery stores. Like, is it possible? Most people told us it wasn't, um, of course. which is, you know, exactly why you go do it. Yeah. Um, so we launched the sauces uh, in f- fancy food of 2017 and fortunately had like a brand whisperer, like a godfather in John Lawson, who's the Northeast regional buyer of Whole Foods, um, figured out distribution, figured out packaging, figured out things like margin. Which, Super easy stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I didn't even know what the, I didn't even know what a category was. Did you, you know? Did you know what CPG was? No, okay. of course not. <laughs> I still sometimes I'm like consumer product greatness, you know, but right. Exactly. Um, And I don't know if you've ever heard on my podcast when Matt, my engineer will like kind of come in and he's, he'll be like, you're using an acronym, like don't use an acronym. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's kind of hard after a while because you start, you Mm -hmm. start to speak the language. It's like, and that's why it comes back to teaching. And now Matt's going to start his own CPG company. By the way, he totally will. I think he should have his own podcast. I think he's so funny. Well, the producers and the engineers of our show are the masterminds. Yeah, same with Mariah. Um, so, okay, so so the school came and the sauces came and then you were like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to find out everything about it. Yes. So you started interviewing exactly. all sorts of leaders in New York. Right, which is, you know, I mean, it's the best possible way to get an hour of someone's time for free. You're like, you want to be on a podcast. A lot of people are like, well, yes, I do. You know, you could be literally no one could be listening to this right now. And you're like, come on my podcast. And I'd be like, OK, great. You yeah, know, you're going to give away our secret. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually a story about a guy. I don't know if you I, I might have said this on one of the shows, but I read it. It was like over the holidays. And there's this like 80 year old man somewhere in like the United Kingdom and he wanted to be a DJ for his whole life and his wife built him like a studio and like set him up with like just a situation just like this and she's like now you're a DJ and he was like spinning records or whatever he did and he thought it was going out on some radio wave (laughs) to people and it wasn't but it made him feel so happy like it gave him probably like another 10 years of life like he just felt like he had like reached his mission and she was like it's great he thinks that it's going out to people but he's just happy doing it so that's kind of like us exactly (laughs) you and I are having a great conversation Mariah's thrilled no one else (laughs) well I'm glad it's making us happy exactly and for the people I mean somehow or another people find it And, you know, other founders, like people don't know this stuff. How would we, this is really weird, random stuff. Mm -hmm. Like 
you think you go to the grocery market, there's a product there. If it's good, you buy it. They still buy. You know, it's you don't know that there's this whole like massive system mm-hmm. and there are all these pieces to it and everything's interconnected and it's this whole other language. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, the deep sea. There's like a whole another world that us humans the don't know ecosystem. anything about. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so uh, that's every, that's most of the stuff you do now. But yeah. as a kid, yeah, what were you like? How did your childhood play into this? I want to be an educator, specifically in the food realm. I mean, it's funny having that question come back to me because. When I think about myself as a kid, I definitely was like entrepreneurial. I remember I made like smelly stickers by spraying yes, like yes, yes, things yes. onto things, mm-hmm. onto stickers and like dropping vanilla extract and stuff. And I was definitely um, interested in making things and and setting up pretend stores and things like that. But I think I was uncomfortable with like the selling part like I liked the making part and I liked the the exchange kind of but I I was never about like ooh can I can I get my goods into that person's hands kind of yeah um and and so I kind of shied away from that part of my personality I think for a really long time and decided that that was not who I was and the teaching part was always part of me. I like would sit my Barbies like in their chairs and like pretend that they were my students. And, you know, I was definitely like I when I pictured what my life would be like, I thought I would be a college professor and I would live on a campus somewhere. And like that just seemed very idyllic to me. Were were your parents educators or professors? Um, My mom actually taught um, deaf and hard of hearing children. So she had, you know, she had students come to her like she had a therapy kind of practice in our apartment. And my dad was a business guy like, you know, Wall Street 80s dude. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I never really... I, you know, didn't consider myself a math person. So I thought, well, I guess I'm not a business person, um, which is wrong, by the way, everyone out there. Um, totally different things. They're totally different. Yeah. Things. You can, I mean, it's not finance. It's business. Yeah. And they're different. Um, and so I, I ended up getting married really young and I had five kids in eight years. And so I kind of took myself out of the workforce, went back to school to get my master's degree in food studies and sustainability. And that's when basically I opened Haven's Kitchen. But I didn't really think of it as a business until like four years after we were open. I thought of it as a school. So so did it kind of unravel itself? I mean, I, I'm trying to think of like, oh, I'm, I'm going to do this having no idea it's a business and it right. it's, remains afloat. Yeah, yeah, it's I mean, I feel I'm the luckiest. I just feel like the luckiest person on the planet. I just keep falling ass backward into things that <laughs> are great. You know, I mean. I was lucky it was profitable. Mm-hmm. I was lucky people loved it. I was lucky a product landed in my lap. I didn't have to go searching for one, you know, that aligns growing the brand, but also growing the mission. Mm-hmm. Like, how lucky am I? You yeah. know, um, those are the moments you have to cherish. I think I'm, I'm yeah. I just I am so grateful. Yeah. So so when you were when you were went to school for for food studies and then mm-hmm. opened up Haven's Kitchen, that's when you were realizing that you had this attachment towards food and sustainability. 
ability? No, I always had an attachment towards food. Um, I think, you know, I was a New York kid and an only child, and my mother had fought very hard for her right to not be in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And so I had the kitchen to myself. And it was just, (laughs) I loved food from a really young age, and all of the kind of quote-unquote happy families that I saw around me all had a kitchen table culture. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted that. So the way that I would get my parents to the kitchen table was by cooking. Or, you know, the way I would get people to come over was by like having little dinner parties in middle school. Mm -hmm. And I just watched a lot of Julia Child and I watched a lot of Galloping Gourmet and I experimented with a lot of things that didn't go great. Um, But it was my place for creativity and it was my place for, you know, happiness. And it was the way that I brought my family, you know, together. Yeah. Um, And so school was just, you know, an extent. I I knew I loved food. I knew I loved eating. I didn't want to be a nutritionist. I didn't want to go into public policy because I had done policy work before I Mm -hmm. got married. And there was this program in like food studies and sustainability and that that just seemed perfect. Yeah. So, I I mean, I'm I'm thinking like every obviously everybody loves food. The whole foodie culture is always growing. Uh, The trends are always changing. But when you were in your parents' kitchen Mm -hmm. and you're realizing like there's actually this food culture, this thing that brings people together Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people notice that and you did so do you think noticing that is what makes us this breed of uh food food entrepreneurs yeah because I I know you talked about this a couple times but like are you and I this specific type of person that surrounds ourselves with food and like people who love food yeah people who love food but like (laughs) yeah but it brings us together yeah it's like 100% yeah I love eating well I love tasty food but what attracts me to it the most is this like me and my friends all around the table yep talking about whatever yep yeah yeah I mean I think of us as like I don't know I think of us as like if you if you could see colors you know, like not necessarily an aura, but I think of food people as purple people. And I think of fashion people as pink people. And, you know, like you have a little purple around you and, you know, there are architecture people that feel this way about going to see architecture. Yeah. You know, I just, I don't really. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, not everyone's a foodie. Not everyone feels... You know, I could cry at a good strawberry, literally. (laughs) Like if you go to the farmer's market and there's just like what a strawberry should be Mm -hmm. and you bite into it and it's all the way through, you know, and it's just it's 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 amazing. There are a lot of people who do not feel that way. Yeah, I, you know? I, I wonder, it'd be interesting to see like MRI studies done. Of our brains. On our brains yeah. when we eat food and like other people, I don't want to say normal people, but right. other, pe- <laughs> other people who eat food. Because um, it does it does do something to me, like my... my Your whole soul. Yeah. And I think, you know, I work in the hospitality industry, right? I've mm-hmm. been in that industry. Forget about like consumer packaged goods for mm-hmm. a second. Like restaurants in New York and hospitality in New York. There's, I think there's a part of your brain, but I also think that there's something 
in your upbringing to some extent. And this is a big generalization. I think those of us that were sort of lonely are really connected through food or we missed a certain amount of nurturing and we tend to nurture others through it or we seek connection through it. And then the flip side, those who really grew up super nurtured and super around Mm -hmm. a table, you know, it's like, it's kind of the either or those people end up finding. You think so? Yeah. So, so when you're, when you're just now telling me your story about lonesome cooking by yourself for the family kind of bringing in my head, I'm like, I didn't know that's possible. I grew up we had family dinners yep. four times a week. We on Sunday, everybody came over to our house and cooked. Yep. I was always around people, and now I have this addiction. This, yep. you call it a problem if you want, but I need to be around people and I need to be around yep. food. And I would always think like, oh, maybe people who maybe only ch- only children or like people who don't grow up around food, they don't they just don't care. But you just opened up my eyes to that. I think. I mean, there's a statistic, and I know this because I'm an only child mm-hmm. who has five children. Mm-hmm. And the statistic with only children, for example, is that we either have only children or we have many children. Mm. There isn't a lot of in-between. It's one or ten. Um, Because you either (laughs) loved your childhood or it was lacking for you. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sort of similar, right? I think you can't imagine having a family gathering that isn't around food, you Mm -hmm. know, that doesn't involve sort of being together and working together and creating something together and sharing it. So, of course, that feels very comfortable, you know, to you. For me, I witnessed that. I watched that. And like whether it was on TV or in my few friends' houses that had that, and I wanted it so badly, you know, and that I created it. Yeah. Now you have it, and it sounds very beautiful. Yeah. So, okay. So now to get into the, the psychology. Yeah. <laughs> to talk about, um, I guess, so you, school, sauces, podcast. Yep. Let's talk about the sauces for a bit. You have five very tasteful sauces. I've tried a couple of them. Cool. In fact, my... Before I heard your podcast, my uncle texted me a picture of your chimichurri sauce. Uh-huh. And I was like, I was having such a bad day that day. And then I got this. I'm like, damn, more competition right. in this badass bag. What? <laughs> Whatever. Okay. And then I heard your podcast. I'm like, wait, Haven's Kitchen. Uh-huh. Uh, I did my research. I'm like, oh, my God, this is the bag my uncle sent By the me. way, there is no such thing as competition. We are building the category together, my friend. And totally. It's be super to- fun. Yes, yes. And, and the interesting interesting thing that I didn't know this about you guys until I started listening was that and you're right we're, we're not competition yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. we're all working together the but the interesting thing is you guys are in a totally different category yeah. than we are we're in the the condiment category which I think is hard but you guys are in the dairy category which is even harder it's ridiculous yeah I mean <laughs> so it's a vegan sauce in the dairy category yeah, yeah. yeah. so why? Why? Well, <laughs> How? Why? You know, it's funny, right? So um, in addition to people saying, OK, sorry, you're going to make a fresh refrigerated sauce. None of them, by the way, share any ingredients, right? Like you have skews that are all over the place mm-hmm. that just which is completely not efficient. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, in a pouch. And can you give us the five the five names of yeah. the 
also we have, a, can you say chimichurri? Chimichurri. Yes, because I like the way you say it more than me. <laughs> and we have a gingery miso, and we have a red pepper romesco, which is a traditional, you know, Catalan mm. Barcelona, that part of Spain sauce. Um, and we have a nutty lemongrass that's cashew and lemongrass and ginger and um, lime, which is sort of that Southeast Asian mm-hmm. flavor profile. And then we have a harissa, which is like a North African mm-hmm. sort of hot sauce, but it's got hints of cinnamon and lemon zest. And so it's kind of warmer, um, kind of rounds out. It's not like a hot sauce, like you you kind of do a hot sauce. Um and, you know, the first question is, A, how are you going to do that and make any money? Mm-hmm. You know, B, where's it going to go in the store? And that's really, at, at the end of the day, you know, I was like, I don't know, it'll go somewhere, right? There's refrigeration. <laughs> There's shelves what there. What people right? don't get is that where it goes in the store is very much decided by the category that it's in and then the buyer for that category and how much, you know, who else is in there. And um, so, you know, if you're a refrigerated product, there are not that many options. You're either in produce, which is usually vegetables and, you know, the guacamole that Whole Foods makes in Mm -hmm. the kitchen. Um, Deli. You know, which is meat, usually. Um, Hummus. And hummus, right? Hummus is part of dairy. Like the, it is, yeah. Even though it's next to the, yeah. oh, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then, uh, or dairy. And dairy used to be yogurt, mm-hmm. and then hummus came around in two thousand and nine. So within each category, like within the dairy category, there are sets. Mm-hmm. So at Whole Foods, for example, they have a hummus set. They have a refrigerated condiment set, but it lives under the dairy mm-hmm. category. Um, so we tend to get that tends to be our buyer. Uh, we do have a couple stores where we kind of get kicked over to the deli buyer um, because they do think, oh, this is good with meat, mm-hmm. which it is. Um, but it's it's, you know, w- when you're kind of creating a new and like an entirely new kind of category, um, you've kind of got to build your home. Like where would perfect bar go? You know, who's buying that? Right. It's yeah. a refrigerated bar. But, but or, l- yeah. let's let's hold up there. W- when you were thinking about this, hey, I'm going to make sauces. Yeah. My students want to have sauces. Yeah. Were you were you did you understand like no. I'm going to I'm going to make these <laughs> I'm going to make these fresh and they're going to go in the fridge cuz that's where it's going to stay the freshest. Right. Yeah, that I mean I wanted I that, it was I got into this because of sustainability. Okay. The last thing I wanted to do was create a product that like didn't need to exist. There's okay. a ton of products out there mm-hmm. that like in my humble opinion are just copycats of other products. They're not really bringing any added mm-hmm. benefit to anyone. There's nothing really unique or special about them. Like the 18 srirachas that are I out mean, there. I mean, you know, I don't want to <laughs> <laughs> sure, every one of you is yeah. very special. But, you know, I mean, I if I'm going to put something in a package mm-hmm. and it's going to be distributed by trucks mm-hmm. that use fuel, it better be doing something good. Yeah. You know, it better be counteracting something on the other side of that. So to me, just making another jar didn't feel like I was really doing that. You know, I wanted to create something that really made people cook more at home. Mm-hmm. And I think that these things really do solve for that. But no, I thought about nothing. I thought it's kind of crazy that this doesn't exist. And then, you know, people are like, well, there are reasons why this doesn't exist. It might not make it. It might not be something that can exist in Mm -hmm. the system that, you know, we're working in. And fortunately, you know, 
I did it anyway. Um, and it's, it is working in the system. And I think there's going to be lots more refrigerated condiments coming. And just like hummus, you know, yeah. Sabra came in 2009 and no one knew what that was. It was this brown gunk. You know, who was the buyer for that? The consumer yeah. had no idea what it was or how to yeah. use it. They had to educate people like on what hummus was. Yeah. Flash forward 10 years later. So, so there's no, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of condiments in that no, category. There's, 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 you're literally creating this. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> that's <Okay>. why I, <laughs> the bags that you see under my eyes, that's what there's no are. bags. There's no bags. But it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But I kind of wouldn't want it any other way, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah, it's fun. It, it keeps you going. Um, so, so as soon as you're like, I'm doing it this way. Yeah. I'm sure all the buyers and distributors were like, okay, well, this, here are the list of problems you need <laughs> right, to solve. Exactly. What, what were some of those? How did they look distribution. like? Distribution. Okay. Right. So no one pays themselves for distribution at the beginning. They're mm-hmm. like, I'll just put it in a cooler and I'll drop it off. Mm-hmm. And Like an igloo cooler. Exactly. Just take it. Okay. Um, that doesn't work. <laughs> so, you know, you have to really, you know, I, again, I'm not a, a flawless numbers person, but I know that if it's going on the shelf at $7, you know, I'm paying, I get paid $4, right? Because someone's got to make the money in Mm -hmm. there. The retailer needs to make the money. Then the distributor needs to make the money. So if I'm selling it to someone for $4, it can't cost me $3.99 to make, right? So you kind of have to back into, can I do this reasonably, you know, for under a dollar fifty, you know, per package. Um, or can I see a time when I could? You know, if I get if I buy enough ingredients and I get packages, you know, in bulk and, you know, but if if it's costing you too much, then, you know, I think the number one thing that and I say this a lot, I have a lot of friends who have amazing products, but the businesses behind the products don't really work because Mm -hmm. it costs too much to make that amazing product. And so at the end of the day, sales are great, but sales are actually accumulating how much you have to spend, which is not yeah. the goal. You know, you're going in the wrong direction a little bit. Yeah. And, and I just for the people listening, I think sometimes I feel that way that maybe my product is awesome. But some sometimes I'm like, Matt, is there a business for this? Right. But you have to keep checking in and looking at the Absolutely. numbers because sometimes you'll feel like there's no business for it. But there really is. You're Absolutely. just you're just not doing things. No. And correctly. you might, you know, the business. One thing that's been super fun about this whole experience is talking to people and like. You know, the business might not be for everyone grocery store. The business for some people might be directly into food service, which is a huge business, right? Or directly, you know, into private label. Or, you know, someone was saying they, I met someone who made this really cool thing for her grandmother who was having a hard time swallowing. And she was like, I need to get my Instagram followers up and I need to meet the buyer at Whole Foods. I'm like, or you should just go to every geriatric doctor in New York and get them to sell it for you. This is a great product. Why are you building an Instagram for like 90 year olds? Yeah. You know, there's a business, there's like a, there's a root for every business. You just kind of have to find out what your root Mm -hmm. is, but you have to be brutally honest with yourself because I think we we're coming to maybe a little bit of an end of an era where everyone just looked at sales 
You know, there were a few years there where it didn't matter what the bottom line looked like as long as the sales were good. Mm -hmm. And then you would just raise venture money. And eventually, hopefully, it would come out in the wash if you got acquired. Mm -hmm. That's not happening so much anymore. You know, you have to have some good some good kind of bones there. Yeah. And maybe not not even just the numbers, but like a great mission and, and well, yeah. how do you give back to the community and stuff like yeah. that. But mission can't be sell product. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, but but you're right. Oh, I think a couple of years ago, like recently, it's let's look at the top line. How much right. money are you making? We don't care about how much debt you have. We'll fix that right. with money. Yeah. And the problem with that model is that it sounds really compelling if you've been working your ass off as a founder for the last couple of years. But what you don't realize is that you end up with, you know, under like less than 10% of your company that way because mm-hmm. you just keep raising money because it's out there and there are people willing to give it to yeah. you, but you're not raising money for nothing, right? You're giving away part of your company for that money. And so how worth it is it at the end of the day? Yeah. You know? So, and we'll get, we'll get to capital raising Ooh, here in fun. a bit. Yeah. That's my favorite. Um, but so I, I guess I guess one of the more uh, complex hurdles you had to cross was the distribution and figure out like how do we keep this cold from point A to point yes. B? How fast do we need to move it? Um, but how and and when I asked you what should we talk about on the episode, I have no idea. You're busy, <laughs> but you said for, forecasting. So is there any like specific tips you have well, for forecasting? So sales? I'm here with my head of sales, mm-hmm. um, and. I don't know. There's just she's you've taught me a lot. Um, (laughs) And I, you know, because people will say, like, so what do you think you're going to do this year? You know, and I'm like, well, (laughs) sell stuff. You know, we've got we've got five SKUs and I think we'll be in, you know, however many doors, which is just another word for stores. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think we'll sell. Uh, you know, a couple of units of each skew per week. And I think we should end up somewhere at about, you know, $5 million. Like you have no idea, right? You And, and one thing is true. We always, as founders, like we always kind of overestimate, always. right? And, and I try really hard to be conservative, but at the end of the day, I just really love my product, and I'm like, it, it's going to do great. Well, when you start doing the numbers, you're having fun, and you're like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna sell a lot right. of these. <laughs> but you know what you don't what you don't know when you first start is something like a reset, right? So, even thinking about next year, if we there are stores that will not put you in until their reset, which is April or May. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking 2020. I've got 12 months of these many doors with this many SKUs. You don't. You actually have eight months. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference. So all of that is like, I think to really build a thoughtful forecast is think about like, what stores do you want to be in? What stores make sense? The, the guys out there that are opening every store that wants them, I think it's a big mistake. You can't support those stores and not everyone is your consumer, right? And a lot of the big stores right now, like, you know, the big guys, they're approaching little brands like ours because they want the cool kids and they want to be innovative, but they can't really support little brands like ours. And so people make the mistake of going to those guys too early and they're opening up, we're in 10,000 not great you can't support yeah. that right no I agree I like I I hear stories of people going to Kroger you get 2,000 stores and you're 
two years old. Yeah, it's, it's too like, early. That is not. You gotta make your mistakes, and you've gotta learn how to build a good team. And mm-hmm. you learn like, how do you enter a cold market? Right? We're a New York City brand. People in New York City know us. Mm-hmm. How do we even introduce ourselves to other places? Yeah. You know. So, so what what have been some <clears throat> like very specific techniques that you guys are using that are just killing it right now because I know we both have had people on our show talk about hyper focusing in your community yes so what are techniques that have been really working for you I think one thing that we really learned was you know everybody needs to demo you need to do demos. You might think that you have the greatest pretzel crisp in the world and you might have 100,000 social media followers. That doesn't necessarily mean that the buyer at the store is going to give you nice shelf space or that you're going to do a lot of you know movement at the store. So for us to sort of... I think it's a little arrogant, frankly, of a brand to think that they don't need to play by those rules. Mm -hmm. So you're committing to demos to support the store and you're also doing it to like what they call drive trial, Mm -hmm. right? Which is a fancy word of saying getting people to taste your pretzel or your Mm -hmm. cookie or your ice cream. So for us, you know, we we committed to demos, but, you know, there's a very big difference in like, hey, you want some sauce versus like, oh, I see you have broccoli in your cart. Can I make a suggestion of how you might cook that really well tonight? Or how are you going to make those lamb chops? Have you ever tried ginger miso? Like there's a for us, the way that we've kind of honed in is we are a cooking school. So we're leaning hard into the fact that that is who we are. Mm -hmm. And so every opportunity we have to turn a demo into a teaching moment or something educational, we're going to do. Yes. Education from from your childhood. Yeah. There you go. Um, very interesting. And, and you're right. Everyone, again, everyone who's been on here is, sorry, Mariah, I'm away from the mic. <laughs> everyone who's been here on the show is the, the main thing, like, yep. from 30 years ago, demo. Yeah. Always demo. I know. Always, always, always be in front. And I've heard beautiful stories from, like, big name companies that are under 10 years old now who have $90 million in capital infusion. We started off in one store and we demoed there four times a week. Absolutely. Because the thing is, is that, you know, I think for a minute there, you know, people started thinking that Instagram was going to solve all that, right? That, you know, you would build such a big community, in quotes, online, and that everyone would be demanding that the stores carry your product Mm -hmm. because they saw it on their scrolling. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't work like that. Like, there's nothing still to this day, like a person looking you in the eye and being like, here's how you use Romesca. No, uh, of course. And like, as, as much as the world's evolving and all this new social media we are literally still animals with totally. biology that's not going to change and we need to be engaged right here Absolutely. in person. And all of this, you know, there'll be no more supermarkets, there'll be no more stores. Even if all of the predictions are right, it's still like 80% of groceries are going to be bought in a store by 2025. But of course. 80%. Yeah. That's still a lot of percent. And it's going to not be, right, it's going to be the products. Because if you think about it, the grocery store is like the original like experiential marketing, mm-hmm. right? It is a experience. You go in, you touch things, you play, you feel around, you know, don't yeah, touch too yeah. much, but you know. I, I don't, 
I am not a believer of the, oh, all groceries are going to turn into distribution centers and we're going to ship everything. I right. don't I don't believe that at all. I know. Well, because we're food people. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I hope that's a good thing. Yes, I think so. <laughs> okay. Um, Let's see. Kind of going to the second part of our discussion. I know. I know we're taking our lovely time, but I like that. Um, <laughs> what are, I guess, some some hurdles that you've encountered that you've totally like overcame with, mm. I guess, dairy category or your sauces or educating the consumers? Honestly, the biggest hurdles are mental. You know, the mm-hmm. biggest hurdle for me is like. You are so ahead of your skis. Like, what the heck are you doing? Mm -hmm. You are not a numbers person. You are not a business person. You don't like sales. (laughs) What are you doing? You know, and I think... Everything else is overcomable. You know, all it is is learning the language. If you plopped me into, you know, Rome and you were like, go, speak Italian, (laughs) I would like I'd be lost. Right. And I would feel like I was in way over my head. And then, you know, you learn like, ciao. Yeah, start a podcast with Italians. And whatever, you know, like, exactly. Like you just have to learn the rules. Yeah. Like. I learned pretty early on that you can't count on your DSD distributor to do your merchandising. You need to have your own field team making sure that you are in stock, that your product looks good on the shelf. I didn't know that rule. Why would I have known that rule, right? So there's no problem that can come your way that you can't learn. The biggest problem for me has been that voice inside me that's like, mm-mm, mm-mm. You're not, you're not like a venture guy. You're not a dude who, you know, in business school decided there was a white space somewhere and, you know, you're too old, you're too this, you're too mm-hmm. that. Um, and getting through that and fighting those demons, I think will probably remain my biggest challenge. Yeah. You know, I, the saying goes, it's, it's the problem. Isn't the problem. The problem's your attitude about the problem. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think, I think as entrepreneurs, that's the biggest, like you said, the biggest game is your head. Yeah. It's like, that's, that's the, that's the main yeah. hurdle. And, you know, I had, um, I had a guest on, he, the, it's, going to be, it's a guy named Matt Bachman from Wandering Bear Cold Brew. Um, and it will be on in a couple weeks because it was a pre-record. But he said, you know, as an entrepreneur, you get addicted to the adrenaline. Mm-hmm. You know, you have like, you you just, every win is like a big win. Mm-hmm. But then every time it's even just a little quiet, you're like, what's going on? What's wrong? Things are failing. Like, mm-hmm. there's no difference between Thursday and Friday. But Thursday, you got a couple of fun emails. And Friday, it was like a little crickety, mm-hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden, you're depressed, you know, and it nothing's changed. But I think, all you know, regulating yourself is is a big part of it. Yeah. And it, it's funny you bring that up because I the first thing I said when I walked in here, I told Mariah, I'm like, or I was like, oh, how's everything going? She's like, oh, it's slow. I was like, Jesus, you're like the 10th right. person today. Right. Who's telling me, I know things are slow. Are you right. do, like, yeah. And, and, you know, you do get a little depressed. You get like, yeah. oh, man, am I doing something yeah. wrong? Am What's I not, wrong? If I, am I not working hard enough? Absolutely. Like, yeah. Yeah. And then you're looking at the media and everyone's like an overnight success. And you're like, wait, 
I don't feel like an overnight yeah. success or like, how come? But, if, you know, you're only getting a little tiny glimpse into mm. what they've actually gone through, you yeah. know, and I think all of us have that. That's why I think as founders, it's really important that we, you know, that we have other people that are in it with us that we can talk to and, mm-hmm. you know, because it's. It's it's vulnerable, you know, having these big meetings. Like, how many people do you tell you have a big meeting? Because if it doesn't go well, then you have to be like, <laughs> it didn't go great. You know, it's all of it. It's just very personal and it's and you're vulnerable. And, you know, the wins feel really amazing. But, of course, no one really understands them outside of this industry because they're ridiculous, mm-hmm. you know. So it's 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 a weird little world. Yeah, you know? I, I had a I have a very close friend of mine who pointed out once we were sitting with a bunch of uh, founders and entrepreneurs, and we we're asking people how things are going with their company, and either th- they only gave two responses. Crushing it. Yeah, well, yeah. E- either either things are good, or people are crushing it. Mm-hmm. So it's like things are good. That means things are stale right. or slow or whatever. And if they're crushing right. it, something great just happened. And I'm just, I'm so not like a we're crushing it kind of gal. Yeah. Like, I'm just not, uh-huh. you know? So. Um, yeah. So I guess, oh, I got so many questions. <laughs> I know. I feel you. I yeah. definitely have yeah. that feeling. Let's, let's talk about um, uh, funding for a bit mm-hmm. because what I, and this is like a, two month realization, three month realization yeah. for me where I'm like, all these companies are go- growing at such a fast speed. What is it? Oh, money. They're getting capital infusions. Yeah. And it's because they're trying to keep up with the market and things are moving so quick. And yeah, yeah social media does expedite things and yada, yada, mm-hmm. yada. How important is it? How do we get it? So I think that's a really good question. Um, I'm really looking forward to being able to really break this down and talk about it fully candidly. Right now I'm a little bit in it, so it's hard to talk about 100%. I will say this. When people talk about bootstrapping, um, that is a very expensive way to go. It's If you are making a product that's sort of expensive to make and it's going to take some time to get to a place where you actually can start to make money on that product, which is probably three years, five years sometimes, if you have enough like saved up or you have friends and family that can support you for that five years – uh, then you're in an okay spot to bootstrap. You're not getting a bank loan. Everyone who thinks I can go to the bank, you are not. Yeah, I like, thought that. To, I know, it's we all like, thought that. Yeah. Because it's a great idea. And I, so you know, they don't no. give, you they need don't. to have millions of dollars. A hundred percent. You need to have something that they can, if you don't pay them, that they can go get. Yeah. Right. So, <clears throat> so at the end of the day, it makes sense that companies are looking to venture funds and, you know, angel investors to fill that gap. I think, you know, obviously the goal is to make a product where the margins make sense, where you can fill the gap is shorter. If you're not going to be profitable for 10 years, you're going to always be fundraising. Not a great plan, right? In a fresh product like mine, my margins are never going to be that amazing. You know, they say like makeup is like 98% gross margin or something. Like the actual formula costs like nothing, Mm -hmm. but that's why they have all that marketing money and that's why they spend so much on great packaging. Yeah. 
a fresh sauce is not even close to that. So, you know, I think, A, you're going to need money if you're going to do this to kid yourself into thinking that somehow you're going to make enough money to pay for it and that you're going to break even in six months is very unlikely. Um, You know, I think that you just have to choose very carefully who you're letting into your business and who you're giving that equity to. Um, You know, we don't always get to be choosy when we're first raising money. One thing I've learned is, you know, I think it's an amazing product. I don't know that everyone else gets it, yeah. you know, or like, I, you know, they, they're looking, they have their own reasons for investing, you know, yeah. they want to grow something in this category or, you know, I've gotten some people say like, we're just not interested in a product that doesn't have a direct to consumer piece. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a direct to consumer. No, it would cost twenty dollars to FedEx one pouch of sauce overnight. Like no one's paying for that. You what, know? If, what if you sold all five? You could, but again, you still have to build like an infrastructure to do that. You yeah. need an entirely different like supply chain and mm-hmm. a pick and pack, you know, warehouse. And yeah. a, you need to build out a website to do that and an e-commerce platform to do that. And then you need to buy, you know, Facebook ads to get that out there. I would rather use Whole Foods as my as my Channel. connection yeah. to my consumers, you know, and wa- spend I w- money there. I want to say it's not as hard as you're making it sound, but it is. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> like selling you know? to, directly to consumers. Yeah, you're right. Especially for a product that needs to be refrigerated. I mean, and and I have I don't have the same issue with my stuff, but I use glass. Yeah, my stuff weighs a lot. Yep. So to ship a, a nine dollar jar. To California, it's twelve dollars. Right. So it's like this issue. So I've been trying you know, to find I mean, out, like, oh, maybe I just sell bundle packages. So then people think it's right. A, and and there are ways to skin it, but at mm-hmm. the end of the day, it, it costs money. Of course, right. Of course. It's not. I think people have this impression that like. And I guess this has happened where overnight something's just become like this incredible success and, you know, everyone in the world wants it and then you have to, but, you know. It's more like a fad. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I guess to go back to the the funding, Mm -hmm. at the beginning were you like – Oh, I'm not going to take a dollar. I, we can bootstrap this. We yes. have we. So the not good gonna news, give any yeah. percentage. You know. Yes. So for us, um, you know, Havens the school was profitable for you know the last since the second year that we opened, mm-hmm. so 2013, and you know this turns out to be the case with most female founders. I kept most of that money in Havens Kitchen, so I was paying myself a little bit, but most of it stayed in the business, which was great because when it came to making the sauce, we had money. Um, So as I started going through that money, I started thinking like, hmm, how where this is going to run out mm-hmm. at some point, right? And so you make your model and you're like, okay, this is how much I'm going to spend this year. This is how much I have in my little bank. How how comfortable am I putting in any more personal money or asking mm-hmm. friends to? And so then you have to start thinking like, I'm going to need some cash like for this to work, you know, because again, and people also don't realize this, like even when you make a sale, you don't get paid. 
You know, so there's there's one thing, which is just money in the bank. But the working capital piece is what people kind of miss. Right. S- say that again. Once you make a sale, you don't get paid. So, so <laughs> I mean, Allison can probably give me the I exact underst- time. I understand but, what you're saying. You know, you, <laughs> yeah. you go in and you're like, hey, Mr. Buyer, this would be great. Right. Mm. And they're like, yes, I like this. I will buy, you know, I will buy this for my store. And then they tell the distributor and the distributor puts in an order and you ship out, you know, you go through your production Mm -hmm. and you make your thing and you send it to your distributor and then you wait. How many months? Three months? If all goes well. If all goes well. (laughs) If it sells. Meanwhile, you've had to put out the money to make, to to do the Mm -hmm. production. So you got to just look at like, okay, I might make, you know, I might make a million in sales this year, but... I need to have working capital every mm-hmm. month to be able to produce the product. And that's where people get really stuck because mm-hmm. they find that there's a big gap. Yeah. Um, and it's it's funny, people like us who we're bringing on like leaders and people who know what they're doing on yeah. here and we're learning all this stuff. I'm just like, OK, now I know what to do. Now I need 50,000 more bucks yeah, to no, bring exactly. on a sales team. I didn't really realize how much I needed to raise until I started really asking some questions and talking about it because everything when it's kind of small it feels you know it feels manageable the the thing is if you want to grow it bigger you're super pumped about the big accounts but a you need to produce for those accounts and b like once you're in them you have to do demos and you have to run Mm -hmm. promotions and there might be spoils and all of a sudden there's all these other costs you know, you have to be ready. And that's why I think all the people giving you the same advice as me, if you launched massive right away, you won't know what you need to fix. Mm-hmm. And so you'll be out there, you know, like in all of these stores and you won't be doing a good job on demos and you won't know how to promote effectively. And you and you, where do I do a dark Instagram ad? Which state should I choose to, to run some? And how do I even know if that's even working? There's just it's it's too complicated of a language. It's like me deciding to go to Italy and instead of like learning the language, deciding to write a novel mm-hmm. in Italian. It's it's just too big, yeah. you know. I guess someone can do it. People figure it out, yeah, but not without but, a ton of money. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, we we do need to wrap up soon. I have two more things I want to ask. Yes. Um, maybe one or no two. What what, <laughs> what are what are some words of wisdom that have really resonated with you that we can share with whomever's listening? That's a good question. Um, I think that I think the word they're two they're two sort of different types of wisdom. One is really dig into if you're a brand person and like the story behind the thing, but you're not really a numbers person. You need to dig into the numbers. You know, if you're a numbers person and you really love the financial modeling of it, you need to figure out who you are and what your brand is and and what's your identity. Like the dig into the parts that don't necessarily get you that jazzed because those are probably your weak spots, you know, um, and they're not always fun and they're they can be really frustrating. But 
you really want to know that stuff before you go out to raise a dollar or you go out to talk to any buyers. Like you want to know this stuff like the back of your hand. So I think that's really good advice. Um, so be, be kind of like become wholesome with yourself. A hundred percent. Know your business. Know every part of it. Like, you know, think about it as a whole. You know, mm-hmm. think about it as like I literally draw this out for people. Start with supply, you know, ingredients, how to make the actual thing. What does it look like when it gets on a truck? What does freight even mean? What is warehousing? How does it, where does it sit? What do the stores look like? What is my category? What stores do I want? What are they looking for from me? How do I market it? How do I promote it? Then going to digital media and talking to the consumer and what's my brand identity and how do, how do all of the different parts of my brand speak to this, to this product, right? There's like a massive system there and you kind of have to really understand all of it, you know, and we get these little gray areas and we're like, "Ugh, I, I, you know, I don't read contracts. I can't really deal with the legal stuff. (laughs) Well, no, actually, dude, that's your job. You've got to read that and you've got to like slog your way through it because Mm -hmm. it's just English. It's like just words, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing special. You just haven't learned that language yet. So teach yourself Mm -hmm. that language or get someone to teach you. I think the second thing is just, you know, you're going to feel defeated at times and you're going to feel like not a lot of hope and you're going to feel pretty crappy. And during those times, really just know the people that you should talk to and reach out to. And, you know, unfortunately, it's not usually always the people you work with because they need you to be sort of pumped up. You know, so find your people and trust them and lean on them. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable with them. Beautiful. No, very, very good uh, pieces of advice. I think people need to remember those kinds of things, especially with our addiction to risk, Mm -hmm. you know, remembering that there is loss to that, but that the success will come if you keep working. Yeah. And I think, you know, the zeitgeist of crushing it. You know, when you're not crushing it and you feel like everything around you is just stories of people crushing it, Mm -hmm. you start to feel kind of crappy. It's like Instagram. I mean, it's like a 14 year old. Yeah. You know, why wasn't I invited to the party? It's the same feeling. Yeah. Um, Okay. Lastly, a a couple like a minute left, two minutes left. But um, just like we started with one of your questions, I want to end with one of your questions. What's been the most fun you've had or what's been one of your favorite like milestones so far? Well, I can't get too into it, but today was probably – today was a good day. Today was a good day. Yeah. But is there one before that? <laughs> one before today? Um, I think the first day that – so my director of sales and my director of operations started on the first day in January. And basically what happened was we were doing well and, and you know, it was time to, like, actually hire a team and, like, actually – make this a a real thing. And we had, um, their first day was like a real onboarding and it was kind of the first time where I could sort of put this all into one big PowerPoint. Like this is, this is who we are and this is what we're doing. And this is what operations look like. And this is what sales look like. And this is where they meet. And this is how we talk about ourselves. And it was just the energy in the room. And they were just these two really talented, really smart people that chose me to 
to come work with, which was really exciting for me. And our whole team just kind of had this this like, okay, we're gonna go build this thing. And that was a that was a great day. It's yeah. it's every day is a good day, mostly. That's beautiful. The so watching the synergy on the first day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think we have to wrap up, but I again appreciate you coming in last minute to do an episode with us. Um, for you guys listening, um, if you guys are ever in New York, go look yeah. up Haven's Kitchen. Yeah. Um, go do a class, you know, go learn <laughs> about some romesco and then <laughs> go to the Whole Foods there and, and buy some of her wonderful sauce. They're they're very delicious. And what you can do from anywhere is listen to one of her episodes of In the Sauce. It's on iTunes. Yep. And, anywhere and you get your podcast. Anywhere you get yes. your podcast. So, again, Allie, thank you very much for Thanks coming. For I totally appreciate me. it. Thank you. It was really fun. Thank you again, Allie. I hope you really enjoyed your time here in Texas, and we expect to see you soon. If you guys want to hear more about Allie and her sauces, check out her podcast, In the Sauce, and keep an eye out for Haven's Kitchen Sauces, hopefully coming soon to a grocery store near you. The Packing Taste team includes me, Axel Brave, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Thank you, everyone at Founding Media, for your support. If y'all have really been enjoying the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. You know the drill. You can also follow along for some behind-the-scenes photos on our social media, at Packing Taste Podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening.